welcome back to We Read the Book. Yay! We're back for another fun-filled episode. <laughs> uh, Lois is back. How are you doing? How are you doing, Lois? Where were you? Why'd you go away? Uh, where did you go? <laughs> uh, please don't cry. Oh, I was in Singapore. It was good. I was only there uh, Friday night to Sunday night, so very whirlwind tour, but it was really nice and also very hot. So I would recommend it, but maybe not this time of year because it's still 60% humidity. You've been to Singapore before? No. This was my first time. Did you did you like you enjoyed it? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, but it's just it's hard to say because I didn't really see that much. So I saw Chinatown. Um, I saw Orchard Road, which my parents live next to. I saw where my dad works. We went on a little uh, river tour, so I saw the um, Marina Bay Sands and oh, stuff. Oh, nice! And the Merlion yeah. and all that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of set, it's kind of hard to say. Oh, yeah, I loved Singapore because I was only there for two days. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I I've, I don't think I've ever spent more than maybe five or six days there. But I like I've been a couple of times for the the Formula One Grand Prix and everything. I just love going out at night. I think I love that city at night. Yeah. It's a really nice uh, nice place, and it's pretty easy to get around as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really different to here. Like people are out really late. Yeah, yeah. Everything's open still. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, Perth. <laughs> What about you? What have you been up to? Uh, I've mostly been occupied with rehearsals for our upcoming show, The Revengers. Uh-huh. Uh, we're getting pretty close to completion now. Uh, it's probably going to be my last show. It's very, very exciting. Um, it's looking great. Like the, the scale of it is off the charts. So. And that's with the UWA Pantomime Society. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so if you're listening to this and this comes out before, this comes, I think this comes out the week before. So yeah. come buy tickets to our show if you live in Perth and you're listening to this. Chances are there's a, probably a fair few of you who are already in it <laughs> yeah. listening to this. Yeah. But come along anyway. <laughs> No, I'm super excited about that. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, we're we're here for a different way, uh, reason this week. We're here for conspiracies and mystery and murder and terrible, terrible. <laughs> so it's very Twilight Zone esque, isn't it? Someone, yeah. um, as we're doing the Da Vinci Code this week, someone yeah. pointed out to me this is basically like slightly more of a thinking man's national treasure. That is such a good description. <laughs> right. I, like I think I've only seen the second national treasure film, but I I get the comparison. Like yeah, yeah it's conspiracy behind you know government conspiracy behind yeah historic uh um and um with his sort of shaggy long hair tom hanks even looks a bit like nick cage i said that all right yeah my wife if you're listening to this i said tom hanks looks like nicholas cage she's like i don't see it it's there it's real <laughs> i knew it wasn't just me i had that thought i'm so happy to hear that <laughs> <laughs> awesome um so our question of the week lois what is your favorite conspiracy theory I'm going to say this is my favourite just because I think it's so ridiculous is um I just find the big farmer and not a big farmer as in tending <laughs> his big, big sheep farmer. but the um the pharmaceutical that pharmaceutical companies um are intentionally making people sick through vaccines or whatever I just I find that so fascinating because I just think what kind of world do people who actually believe that actually think we live in? Like, like millions of pharmacists and chemists and yeah. doctors are evil at, at the core. Yeah. Like yeah, <laughs> it can be quite a serious issue because it leads to people being anti-vaccine and that kind of things. But at the surface level, I just find it so funny that people think that there's like this huge conspiracy to keep people sick and dying. It's like, so dumb. It's really dumb. That would be my favourite. What's yours, Adam? Uh, I'm definitely all aboard the Obama can control the weather conspiracy. (laughs) (laughs) And so at the heart of this, uh, basically, Obama is using his weather control. I don't know. I'm not sure. It's... I don't really know whether they're implying that he has magic powers or a machine of some sort, uh, but in any case, uh, that he's using it to distract 
uh, from any political pressure that he comes under. Right. Like, so say, you know, he's apparently, like, he's under pressure for the whole um, uh, Benghazi thing or something like that. He's like, bam, tornado in Alabama. Uh, I'm going to, you know, give some aid there and make himself look like a hero. Like, seriously, why would, if you had a weather control machine or powers of any sort, why would you not go and solve, like, famine in Africa by making it rain, you know, or yeah. something helpful? Like, it's so dumb. Also, if Obama had magic powers, that would be the best thing ever. Yeah. And I would totally want to reelect him for a third term. Yeah. Because we are about, we're about to face a hurricane, Hurricane Trump, and it's going to be terrible if he yeah. just gets in. I mean, I've said to all my friends, I can't see him winning. I mean, look, said sp- that about Bush, so. I've seen, I, all right, I was a sports fan, so this has been a huge week for me. I've just seen, we've just, the whole sports world has just gone crazy over Leicester City, who are this tiny um, little club. We're in the third division of English football eight years ago. This year, they came up and they were 5,001 odds and they won the English Premier League. Yeah. It's a massive deal. Can I know? just stop you? Literally, all I'm hearing is just sports, sports, sports. sports and that's okay. Sports, that's sports. okay. Maybe but, someone out there will understand. Yeah, okay. Right. But like, this is a this is a world where that should never have been able to happen. There were shorter odds on Kim Kardashian becoming president. This is a world where I don't know what to believe anymore. Anything yeah. could happen. Yeah. But yeah, so Obama, if you can control the weather, um, I know some farmers who live out here in Australia. They could use a hand. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what that phrase must have been invented for. All right, uh, we're going to move on. Uh, to the Da Vinci Code. So, oh man, there is a lot to talk about here. Uh, before we were watching and reading for this podcast, had you uh, read or watched the Da Vinci Code before? Uh, yeah, both. So I read the Da Vinci Code when everyone read it in the whole world. Um, <laughs> I was about 15 when it came out um, and I was on school camp, I remember, and I just devoured it. Um, and I thought it was amazing and, you know, clever and so great. Yeah, it's a page turner, so I just couldn't put it down. Um, and then I think I saw the movie when it came out and I'd actually just flicking through Netflix had rewatched the movie a couple of months ago. So this is my third rewatch <laughs> of the movie. <laughs> Um, okay. So, yeah, I mean, you? I'd um, I mean, I'd watched and read it before as well. I can't remember exactly when I read it, but I have a feeling it was a, it must have been a substantial while after it became big. It might have been before the movie. When was the movie released? Two thousand six. And the book was two thousand three, right? Uh, in any case, so I must have read. I mean, I maybe two thousand five, two thousand six is probably about when I read it. Um, I, I thought it was kind. Of, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, I was pretty pretty deep into church at that time, so I was kind of taking it with a bit of skepticism, you know, and kind of I think I avoided reading it maybe for that reason early yeah. on. Yeah, eventually that kind of. I was just like, oh, I'll just read it. You know, I can. I'm smart. I know what's fiction and what's not. You know, this is the, I came from a, a world where some uh, sections of religion were like, oh, Harry Potter's bad. I'm like, Harry Potter is fiction and should be regarded as such. And if you think that wizards are real, you're dumb. Yeah. Uh, and I'm interested to hear you say that you might have avoided it for religious reasons because to me I think that it actually treats Christianity quite respectfully really yeah there, there were some people who did not think that who, who, well, read, who read and watched but the church especially yeah. well listening to it I listened to the audiobook and, and watching it again I think that the message well definitely end of the movie the strongest message is that wouldn't it be better to let people have their faith than to destroy it um which I think is very pro-Christianity so I mean I'm not saying that you're wrong but I think maybe um some people often have knee-jerk reactions to anything that's like seen as even slightly critical yeah. in actual fact it's not critical of the church it's just critical of some practices or yeah. um, some secrecy and, and that kind of thing well I think this goes the, this this conspiracy goes fairly deep into yeah. I mean and that's obviously what the church has issue with yeah in, in that they're like oh this doesn't exist and it look, let's be real it doesn't like yeah. maybe there's some there's some base elements of truth in this which are like yeah. maybe there was, there was a Knights Templar and some all that sort of thing yeah 
the main core of the conspiracy does not exist. It's it's a fabrication. I think the issue that may a lot of people would have had with it, especially religious people, is in that Dan Brown insisted it was real. Yeah. Or at least insisted that does. the large parts of it were real. And yeah. still does. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've got some great quotes from some of the actors who were in the movie. Um, Tom Hanks came out and said, um, uh, my heritage and that of my wife suggest that our sins have been taken away and not our brains. I mean, he's smart enough to realise that. Ian McKellen uh, said, while I was reading the book, I believed it entirely. Clever Dan Brown twisted my mind convincingly. But when I put it down, I thought, what a load of potential codswallop. <laughs> People aren't stupid. Like yeah. Yeah, this is this. It's always a bit of bugbear of mine. It, it, you have to be able to discern fiction from reality. This is clearly fiction. It's in all the fiction sections. No one's attempted to put it in the non-fiction section of a bookstore. Yeah. It's a fake book. Like these events are made up. So any controversy around, oh, this is real. It's like no, it's not real, yeah. and it should be regarded as a piece of art. It, it, I agree. I, like, I think I agree with what you said. And it, it's a page turner. You know, the, the conspiracy makes you want to read more about it. You're like, yeah. Oh man, this is fascinating, and that element of it does make you want to read more. But it's fiction. Fiction, people. <laughs> Come yeah. on. What I was saying to you before, like the one of the things I found rewatching it and rereading it, I was much more aware of the way that Dan Brown made how you make a make it a page turner. One of the things that really started to bug me as I got through the book was um, the characters are on this life-threatening, you know, major grail quest, and yet they'd come across a puzzle. One of them would figure it out, usually Robert Langdon, and the book would say something like, he waited until Sophie got it because his thrill for puzzles got the better of him. And I was thinking, no, that's just you wanting to keep the reader on edge. That's not how people act. I'm a real proponent of writing being true to how people act. You know, I'm, I definitely um, uh, suspend my disbelief, definitely. But when people are talking to each other, I want it to be grounded in how people actually speak. I don't want people to be like, I won't tell you, you figure it out for yourself while we're running from a guy with a gun. No, you would say, it's this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, this, let's run. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I think it's important as well that, to note it's definitely here the conspiracy that drives uh, the action forward uh, or it drives you to want more and not the style, especially in the book, the style of writing. Yeah. Because Dan Brown, the, the prose is kind of formulaic. It's not, yeah. it's not the best writing you'll ever see. It's definitely the story and the plot that's, yeah. that's making you want to read more. Yeah. And he's a clever, he's clever the way he's put it together and mm. the way that he's taken these threads and you don't see them coming. And yeah, it's really clever, but um, is it good writing? No. no. I mean, Definitely he sold millions not. of books, but it's on the basis of, the, of his plot yeah. and not his, people, his style and, writing. And then I think, you know, once the fervor and especially also once people start saying, oh, well, it's evil, you know, then that sells more books. Then people who go, oh, that's an idiotic thing to say. They go and buy the book because they want to know why a certain group of people are saying that it's evil. Yeah, I agree. You know? Okay, so I guess we're going to get into the plot. Hold on to your seats, everyone. This is going to be a bit of a long one. And we've taken out the majority of the puzzle information. But uh, this is the bare bones as much as we could cut it down. The bare fat bones. Yeah, yeah. Whale bones. (laughs) These are the whale bones. It's a huge rotting carcass. So a plot summary. Curator of the Louvre, Jacques Saunier, is murdered inside the museum by a hooded figure called Silas who is demanding the location of a keystone. French police captain Bezu Fache brings in American professor of symbology Robert Langdon to assist in decoding a series of messages that Saunier left at the scene of the murder. Fache secretly suspects Langdon, but Langdon manages to escape the Louvre thanks to French cryptologist Sophie Nouveau. 
Meanwhile, Bishop Aringa Rosa facilitates Silas' further investigation of the Keystone, but when Silas reaches the location Sonia revealed upon his death, he realises he has been deceived. Langdon and Naveau use a key Sonia left in the Louvre to access a safety deposit box which they open to reveal a cryptex, a device which needs a code to unlock the treasure inside. Langdon by this point suspects Sonia was a member of a secret organisation associated with the Knights Templar. Being chased by Fash, Langdon and Sophie escape to the home of Lee Teabing, a British historian who specialises in Grail lore. After some heavy exposition, we discover the Holy Grail is actually a reference to the bloodline of Jesus Christ, who married Mary Magdalene and had children with her. After a scuffle at the house with Silas and the French police, the trio of Langdon, Sophie and Teabing, along with manservant Remy and a captured Silas, fly to London to search for the tomb of Mary Magdalene. Remy betrays the group upon reaching the Templar church, but is himself betrayed by Teabing, who reveals himself to be the teacher who has been controlling Silas and Aringa Rosa. Langdon and Sophie escape to Westminster Abbey, where the next clue is located, but Teabing is already there, having killed Remy and betrayed Silas to the authorities. Teabing then forces the duo to open the cryptex, but Langdon cannot do it, so he throws the cryptex into the air and forces Teabing to drop his gun and prevent the cryptex, the cryptex and the Grail's location inside it from being destroyed. The police arrive and arrest Teabing, but as he is taken away, Teabing realises Langdon had cracked the code after all and opened the cryptex before throwing it in the air. The scroll inside the cryptex takes Langdon and Sophie to Roslyn Church, where after more exposition, it is revealed Sophie is a direct descendant of Jesus. At the very end, Langdon, now back in France, realises the final clue Sonia left revealed the true location of Magdalene's tomb, the Louvre. Also, Silas shot Aringa Rosa and then died, but Aringa Rosa was still alive. Okie dokie, there is a lot to talk about there. Yeah. And we've not even got into the uh, the meat on the bones, that is. Yeah. That is the bones. We both accidentally watched the extended version, yeah. which is three hours long. It's so long. It's so long. But the um, the, uh, the non-extended version is, is about two and a half. The audiobook I listened to was really frustrating because it's nearly, nearly all of this is set in France. How long was the audiobook? Oh, a good... Five hours. I was going to say, I remember yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I did the audiobook for that, and that was a good four yeah. hours, and yeah, that's a small book compared to... I think it was almost six, actually. Yeah. Um, but it was mostly frustrating because it's it, this is pretty much mostly set in France with French characters speaking in French accents and speaking French, and the guy who was reading the book had the worst French accent <laughs> I've ever heard. He just mangled every word. Oh, I, I can't even give an example, but... There's times where the movie's not much better at that, because there's some pretty muffled dialogue in French. Yeah. I was lucky that the version I had had subtitles uh, with it, because otherwise I would have been stuck. Yeah, I couldn't get the subtitles to work on mine, So, but because I'd just read the book and I'd previously seen the movie, I, I just didn't bother, because I was pretty aware of what was being said. Just for the record, I'm like learning French at the moment, so I was like, oh, I'm starting to pick out some of those words yeah. there. Hey, oh. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend... <laughs> The getting the audiobook. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's more than one, but uh, yeah, this this particular one wasn't that great. Okay, so the movie's pretty faithful, especially in the start. Um, they the stuff you take the stuff they take out, you can tell they took out for timing. The, there's a lot of stuff in the book where we were talking about how they they spent almost possibly even a third of the start of the book in the Louvre, and the movie's possibly less than that. But a lot of that in time in the Louvre is spent figuring out the puzzles, whereas in the movie, for time's sake, they're pretty quick at figuring them out. Um, and that's fine for a movie. I mean, it makes them seem kind of sort of almost inhumanly clever. They put this thing in the movie where um, when Robert Langdon's figuring out the codes, it shows the, the letters 
flashy. Yeah, there was a nice little visual feature that yeah. featured often throughout the film when they're talking about, you know, the blade or the chalice symbols, which yeah. are triangles inverted, and, and they kind of just highlight them for you in the movie. It's a nice little uh, effects touch. Yeah, there. so... I think everybody in the movie seems a lot quicker than, you know, you would really expect someone to be at picking up a code. And the book really feels like real people figuring out codes, even though they're very smart and very used to dealing with this kind of thing, they're still having trouble with it. And it's quite complicated, which is nice in the book, but you can see why you wouldn't do that in a film. In the books in particular, you can go through the character's thought patterns on the page. Yeah. And you can't do that in a movie. Yeah. So they get a lot more time to expand in the books and it's it's actually quite interesting in the books i i probably one of my favorite parts was watching them figure out or reading them figuring out the codes and uh each little clue that lent here and there especially this opening section of the louvre it's actually quite good yeah one of the things i noticed in the movie that they changed which i'm not really quite sure why they did that um was that in the book it says several times definitively that langdon hadn't met sonia and in the movie he had met him once yeah, for for the purposes of uh, of it. they met they met once oh, are you at sure? a conference. Was, was that not in the book? I thought no, they met. they'd never met in the book. Definitely. Okay. Um, and, and then they, he met once and made a joke or something. Yeah, made a joke at his expense, and then there's some warm moment between him and Niveau. It's very mild um, character building, if that's the only reason they yeah, included it. Yeah, it's very weird. So that struck me straight off. Also, this is very minor, but he's collected from the talk that he's giving and not his hotel room. But yeah, so those in the first sort of section, those are the first, the only couple of things that I kind of really noticed, um, apart from how quick it was with Sophie, especially Sophie finding the key behind the Madonna of the Rocks. Very quick. Very quick. That that, that struck me. That struck me straight away when I was watching the film as it just drops out from behind the painting and then they're off like straight away. I was like, oh, that was really quick. Yeah. Apparently, I was kind of hoping actually that that one of us had not seen the extended version uh, because, I mean, obviously there's some differences, but in this, this opening scene in the Louvre, that whole section where they hide behind the Madonna of the Rocks painting and use it as a hostage yeah. is not in the theatrical release. So they just, they just escape. They just escape uh-huh. uh, and the yeah. guard runs into an empty room. I'm glad that that's 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 really suited. Extended, I, yeah. From what I from what I can gather, the theatrical release is less adherent to the books. But yeah, so that that's kind of what I've gathered. But that that seemed kind of important. So and so had I, I mean, I haven't watched the theatrical release, but I would have been surprised uh, that they didn't include that. Yeah. So um, so this first opening. Well, let's talk about this opening scene in the Louvre. Uh, oh, it's so beautiful. Lovely. I mean, I've I'm looking forward to going to the Louvre later this year when we go to my wife and I go to Paris. And I've never seen it. Yeah. Um, but the description in the book is fantastic of it at night. Uh, the, I actually really enjoyed re- like reading about him entering and talking about uh, some of the paintings, things like that. It was a wonderful bit of uh, setting. Yeah, it, it was very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a beautiful setting. And um, apparently, I read last night, uh, it's not filmed in the Louvre. No? No, this is all a set, I, that, which is that amazing. That, doesn't, that actually didn't surprise me that much, if that's true, because I figured... I mean, obviously the outside shots of the Louvre are done yeah. outside the Louvre and getting filming inside, I imagine, would be a hard permit to get considering how I think expensive it's that um, the Pyramid in Versailles, the, in, the inside pyramid, was filmed inside the Louvre, but none of the paintings are real um, okay, yeah. because of um, harsh lighting. Like, yeah, that's they, true. I understand uh, that, yeah. Spending days and days with harsh lights on them would just degrade them and they're really strict about it. Yeah. So. That's yeah, that's what I understood was the reason for that. But um, it looks like the Louvre. Yeah, I mean, from what I, mean, I understand, I've never been to the Louvre, but yeah. 
But when um, I go, I will come back and I'll let you all know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from what I've seen of photos and, and um, you can do virtual tours a little bit on the internet and things. Yeah, and the paintings, they look real. You know, it's it's really, really well done. Yeah. Before we even get into Langdon's appearance in the Louvre, obviously, though, we have Sonier's murder, which mm-hmm. is the first, first scene you see mm-hmm. uh, as he's running away from this hooded figure, Silas, played by Paul Bettany. Oh, Paul um, Bettany's so good in this role. It's interesting having just watched Civil War yeah. and him playing the Vision and now coming back to this where he's playing the villain, uh, yeah. Silas. Two very different characters. But I, I really enjoyed seeing him. This yeah. So it's a, he plays the role pretty well. Oh, he's scary. Yeah, he's like really creepy, but you kind of feel sorry for him as well. Oh, yeah, no um, doubt. I mean, he is being manipulated as yeah. he is. I mean, let's just talk about the casting for a second. Tom Hanks, Ian McKellen, Paul Bettany. They're the three big ones, aren't they? They're the three big names. And then the rest of, I mean, um, all the other characters are French. Yeah, but Audrey Tartu, Alfred Molina and John Reno are also big guests. Oh, yeah, Alfred Molina is not French, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Alfred Molina is Spanish, but John Reno is a big name actor. It's just not so, I mean, he's got a few Western movies to his name. Yeah. France is a Western country, but yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Non-French movies yeah. to to his name now. But, um, I mean, in France, he's a big deal. I like that they did actually use French actors. Um, I thought the exact same thing when yeah. I was watching. I was very pleased that they it all seemed very authentic. You know, I like the actress who plays Sophie. Is that Audrey Tattoo? Audrey Tattoo, yeah. yeah. In my head, the only actress I know who... Like, I obviously knew it wasn't her. But in my head, the only actress I've seen who played a French character that speaks English is I don't even know her name she's the actress who plays the French detective in Now You See Me uh, oh, yeah. the movie about magicians which is one of my favourite movies of all time uh, but she's kind of the only one in my head who was playing and so before I watched this I was like what if that was her but it wasn't yeah um, but yeah but she Audrey Tattooed then does a very good yeah. job she's um you know I, fi- I found her a little bit sort of doe-eyed in a few points She's just kind of annoying. And also doesn't look at all like the character, we have to mention. Um, the character in the book has red hair, like Mary Magdalene. That's made abundantly clear. Yeah. Because they're foreshadowing that she's the descendant. So, um, And Audrey Tattoo is, is dark. She's got dark hair and very, very pale skin. So, so in a movie, it's a minor. Yeah, but, minor. you know, it is different. But yeah, I, I, really, I really thought there's no reason this movie couldn't have been really really good considering mm. the acting talent they got but the acting's not particularly poor no i mean, or, or, I, mean I feel they squandered alfred molina a bit he's yeah he's really good and aringa rosa's a bigger force in the book and he's kind of wasted on you understand i mean i guess i understand obviously time limitations that there's limited amount. and he does get quite a bigger role in the extended release than the theatrical one apparently but even then he's yeah almost, if you had to cut a main character from the film it would be him yeah oh yeah i mean because his role is so be. minor at but the end um of all of it. lieutenant the lieutenant calais calais got more screen time than he did and i wouldn't have said he was a more important character i mean yeah. he probably did have a lot more time in the book but I wouldn't say that he was... His character is actually very different in the book, and I'll talk about that when we get to the middle kind yeah. of section of the film because there's, there's something I'm pretty sure is a big difference. But Yeah. I wouldn't have said he was. it was more important to show Collet than Aringa Rosa. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, Collet is kind of the back, the, uh, the second in command to uh, Fash, Fash yeah. who I really like. Yeah. Uh, his character is pretty pretty on point with yeah. what I imagined in the in the book. Yeah, I think I because I already knew Jean Reno played uh, Fash. I think when I was picturing him from the book, I just imagined Jean Reno. Okay. So when I saw the movie, then I sort of then it felt right because I'd done that sort of loop around. But um, 
yeah, I, re- I really, I thought he was a really good, a good character in the books. And so we get in this first scene in the in the Louvre where they're decoding the symbols. They get through it pretty quickly, as we've said. Uh, it was nice that they, in the extended release, they cover that uh, Madonna of the Rocks hostage. Although I was thinking when I'm watching, this guard is really dumb. And Fash is right. Shoot the painting. Yeah. You've got murderers about, like, or, you know, they think that they're murderers. You've got murderers, potential murderers about to escape. Like, yeah. <laughs> you just let them go because you don't want to shoot the painting. I, I understand it's a big work of art and the French are very attached to their art. In the book, it's not a cop. It's a guard, though. The a, museum, museum guard. Museum guard. And um, you can understand that that painting would be worth millions of dollars. And maybe if you're a security guard or even a cop, you're not earning that much. And you're thinking, if I destroy that, are they going to come for me? and take everything from me because I've destroyed a priceless work of art. Yeah. Um, you can understand the motivation there, I think. It's nice in the book, though. It's a nice little way to, to allow them a way out because like, yeah. how are they going to get out? Like, they're Yeah, you kind of feel they like they're no back to the corner. have no leverage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a scene in the movie. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's the first thing that happens or whether it's uh, if it's before Sonia's death or after, but the first time we see Langdon and he's lecturing to his students because he's a professor of symbology at Harvard. Yeah. Uh, and this, Which they I, go on and on and on about. Definitely. In the book. He's Harvard. He's Harvard. from Harvard. Is Dan Brown from Harvard? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, I kind of assume the amount of times that it's mentioned in the book and like how much reverence they give to it. Yeah, but I just want to point out there's this scene here and he's asking his this lecture theatre, there must be a thousand students there, something yeah. close to that, uh, questions. Is, is this a guest? This must be a guest lecture at a French yeah, university, in the which book is why it's, he's there. It's saying that he got invited to speak and then yeah. Sonia contacted mm-hmm. him and said, we will want you to come and yeah. have dinner with me? Yeah. Uh, and so, and so they're at this lecture... And he's asking these questions, and the students just like answer, 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 wrong. And then he asks the next question, answer, 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 wrong. That's not real. Students in lectures do not shout out the answers to their lecturers' questions. <laughs> I spent six years at university. It does not happen. It's a lie. It's bad directing. His students would have been like, okay, whatever. Yeah. There, well, there might be one person down the front answering. Yeah, there's a, there's a mature age student. Glaring, there's yeah. a mature age student down the front <laughs> who answers the question. You know yeah. that's how it goes. And then looks around smugly at everybody, yeah, yeah. like, "Oh, I did the reading." <laughs> yeah, but I just thought that was really funny when I was watching that. And then he obviously gets abducted from his uh, his book signing by yeah. fashion, taken to the Louvre. Yeah. Oh, the all right. So here's something that was not in the books. Correct. This eidetic memory. Uh, that yeah, Langdon has sure that's that a, that's something new. So in the scene, uh, Sophie asks because uh, he's taking down these notes really quickly, and so and Sophie's pretty impressed, and she's like, "How are you doing this?" And you've got eidetic memory, and he says, "No, but I've got something kind of similar." It's like I found that weird memory. because she what? says he's literally standing in front of it, writing it down, and she says, "Oh, you have eidetic memory." He's looking at it. Mm. It's not like they've run off, and twenty minutes later he's writing it down word for word. But he has some sort of... standing in front of it. It doesn't make any sense what she says to him because if you have an eidetic memory, sure, you can remember or or just a really good photographic memory, you can remember. But anyone could have written it down at that... She could have been writing it. They were both standing there. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. And it's it's a very strange addition because it only really serves one purpose, which is very, very late on in the film when he's trying to... When he's trying to open... He's forced to open the cryptex. Uh, by T-Beam 
and he is picturing the tomb that they'd just been at, which they're no longer at. He's picturing uh, Sir Isaac Newton's tomb, trying to figure out which of the orbs is missing. And you see him go through this process as they use some graphics to yeah. get it in front of him, as if he's imagining it in his head. But that's all they do. It's like, why couldn't he just have remembered? And that's not how it happens in the book. No. That he's looking at apple trees that are in the orchard outside. Yeah. And he realises that rosy flesh and seeded womb is an apple. Mm. It's a very strange call to make, I think, in in terms of accuracy. Yeah, they could have just shown apple trees. Yeah. <laughs> it would have made... I mean, I guess if they'd shown apple trees, then the audience goes, oh, it's apple. But if they show him looking at the tomb, then you, he gets to do the reveal of it's apple. Yeah, it's, it's a very... Which, by the way, he reveals it by spelling the word apple. Yeah. And then saying what that spells. <laughs> like, in complete deadpan. It's very weird. <laughs> I'm yep. sure she can spell apple, Robert. Like, yeah, this identity very... memory thing is very strange. Uh, but the rest of this opening scene is pretty close. There's the addition as well of his claustrophobia, which was not in the book. Yes, it was. It was? Okay, yeah. I must have totally skipped down yeah. on that. Was he stuck down a well? Yes. Okay, there you go, skip yeah. down on that as well. <laughs> is that uh, only to reference that bit at the end then, when he's like, oh, I was stuck down a well and I prayed to Jesus, so maybe it's all uh, right to have faith? Or... Yeah, it's... it's um. I think it's just to bring him closer with Sophie in the book because that thing happens def- where she puts his, her hands on his face. At first, because I, I was like, oh, is this just to create romance no, between yeah. the two characters during the thing? And, yeah. And it's it's uh, like a semi-romance that they come up with. They do use it a few times. They use it, you know, in the bit where he goes in the lift with Fash and he says, do we have to go? Can we go down the stairs? Well, um, that's the first appearance of it. That's what yeah. kind of shows you he has claustrophobia. Well, the- I just wasn't sure at that point whether he was just afraid of elevators or not. Yeah. In the book, Fash remarks on it and he says, oh, you seem nervous. But he doesn't think to say, "I'm." he's a bit embarrassed and he's claustrophobic. So he doesn't say, I'm nervous because I'm claustrophobic. So then Fash misinterprets that he's nervous because he's been called there by the police. Yeah, so that is in the book. But then later on, he's in the jet with Teabing and that, this tiny private jet. Yeah. And that's not much bigger than the truck that he was in where he was feeling claustrophobic. Well, yeah. It's very strangely done. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so they, they skip through the Louvre pretty fast. Sophie on the way out, does she just throw the guard's gun somewhere? Yeah. On the Why? They take it with them in the book. Why not definitely? keep the gun? Yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> I just kind of caught it out of the corner of my eye. I was like, did she throw something else away? But the only thing she had on her that would make that sound yeah. was a gun. And if it is, then okay, I guess. Yeah. Why not keep the gun if you're being chased by people? Yeah. Um. So then they drop their car. They try to go to the embassy to, to drop Langdon off. off. But the police are already there, so then they hightail it out of there. Um, there's a cool car chase with them in a smart car, oh, which is hilarious. I, now, my wife was watching this at the same time as me. She can reverse drive, man. Like, she <laughs> knows how to put that thing in reverse because she's going backwards on this road. And I'm yeah. like, how the hell are you doing that? Like, yeah. she's crazy. She's just looking behind her, like, one hand on the wheel. Yeah. <laughs> It was very, like, she's got some skills in a smart car. <laughs> yeah, it's very I, mean, I know they're small cars, but man. And like, they shoot through two trucks that are... Oh, I watched that. I was like, no way. I yeah. said that as they were coming through there. But it like, was, man. I mean, it's, it's a an car action chase. Movie. Yeah. Or, like, not action movie, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I quite enjoyed that. And then, so they dump the car, and then they go through this park, which is full of prostitutes and yeah. drug addicts and... It's like, it's like Central Park, but in France, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember which one it is from the book, what like what they call it, but yeah. it's like apparently the police don't patrol there, they don't even bother, um, which sounds great. <laughs> so they just want some time to think. Yeah. So they Do they go, go there in the book? They go through there in a cab, oh, okay. 
Um, but they don't stop there. Yeah. Um, so then Sophie does this weird thing where she approaches this guy doing smack and is like, hey, let me give you $20 and you give me your heroin. And he does, which is weird. He must and not then, have very much heroin left yeah. then because that shit is expensive. Yeah. Not that I would know, but I'm yeah. assuming that drugs are not cheap. Adam, this is actually an intervention. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> And you four so, episodes to get him, and we finally <laughs> exposed I am a massive heroin addict. Yeah. So they sort of sit down and think about what to do, and they talk about the key, and then they decide to go to the Swiss bank. Here's some exposition on this key that we have. Yeah. There's a lot of moments here, and in the book, admittedly, there's a lot of exposition that they yeah. have to get through at yeah. times. Which is, it's strange that they stop to do that exposition because in the book they definitely don't stop to do no, it. It's, it's they do it while the they're taxi. in a car going somewhere. Yeah, so that's fine. It's a bit odd. That's uh, so, th- but there's stuff happening aside from these characters while this is happening because we're getting uh, some clips of Aringa Rosa, the bishop, uh, and starting to learn about his plan in the book uh, and a little bit in the movie. They don't delve quite as much into it. And Silas and what he's up to. So Silas mm. is off to this old church uh, to try and find the keystone. Yeah, so it turns out that... So when Sonia has been killed, Silas is asking him, tell me where it is. And he says, no, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. And then finally says, it's here, it's at this church. And Silas says, thank you, and then kills him anyway. And then it turns out that there were four other... Three, three others. others. Or four, three, three others. others. Yeah. So three others that were also killed, and they also told Silas the same thing. And um, in this bit, we get Silas's backstory through flashbacks. There's a nice way they do it in the movies, actually. Yeah. It's a good help visualising it, and they... Yeah. Um, so he was um, imprisoned for killing his father, who was beating his mother, and then an earthquake shattered the... Basically destroyed the... <laughs> it's ex- exactly like in the Bible. Yeah. It's destroyed the um, the walls of the prison. and That jail dead. comes down, like, the whole thing. Yeah. I, I specifically wrote down, I'm like, build better prisons, man. That is such a poor foundation for a prison. What the hell, Spain? Yeah, so weird. Um, and Aringarosa takes him in and looks after him. And then uh, he returns the favor by protecting Aringarosa from these thieves. And they basically become inseparable and he, he, he'll do anything for Aringarosa. So that, that's and then, all And then Aringarosa rents out Silas to the teacher, who's yeah. this unseen figure. Yeah, so Aringarosa... It's explained a lot more in the book, but basically Opus Dei is this, who Aringa Rosa is part of, it's a sect of Catholicism, and they um, have followers who are very fundamentalist, like Silas, who do um, physical punishment and... Flagellation. Yeah, self-flagellation, and also the Silas belt, which is this, like, spiked belt you put around your thigh... Um, self-harm basically to try and uh, replicate what Jesus went through yeah and because of this other catholic sects have been saying well the main church is like you're too weird to be associated with us and they're kind of bribing them into doing their dirty work and and finding the location of the grail well in the book that's not it's a ringarosa is doing that secretly yeah he hasn't told them that that's what he wants the money for so in the book he has agreed to let them remove Opus Day as an official approved by the Pope Catholic sect in in exchange for 20 million euros or whatever. And they don't know that he's going to use that to try and find the Holy Grail and, and therefore then come back and be like, I've got the Holy Grail, so you have to let Opus Day stay. Uh, but in the movie, they make it this extra conspiracy that the Catholic Church knows what Aringarosa is doing and they're approving of it 
And there's no, there's none of this, we don't want Opus Day being part of our club, yeah. which I kind of missed. I liked that in the book. I thought it was interesting and... Yeah, I wonder if that's an attempt to simplify because one of the things I thought going through is the longer you go on, the more secret societies are mentioned and the more like names, because yeah. you've got the Knights Templar, you've got the Prior of Sion, you've got the uh, Opus Dei sect, yeah. you've got everyone and their mum has their own secret society in this. <laughs> Um, and my mum's secret society is not very interesting, <laughs> but there's a lot of names to remember. Hey, I know your mum. She's pretty cool. <laughs> she won't let me in. I just want to know what's going on. Um, it's the No Adams Club. The No Adams Club. You can have one. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so there's just a lot to remember. So I understand if maybe they've just tried to simplify. There's a, they've simplified some stuff and complicated others, and it's very strange, but there's yeah. a lot to remember. So you've got to be pretty... Ad- paying attention pretty well to the plot to know what's going on here. Yeah. So anyway, so we, we meet Aringarosa, he's on the flight and you get a little bit of this sense that Opus Day is a fringe sect, sect because he's um, rehearsing an interview with one of, with his like assistant and the assistant's saying, we need to keep on message. We need to make sure that people feel positive about the church. And then he goes to Italy where he meets a bunch of other bishops and they have a bit of a sassy meeting where he's mean to one of them. Yeah, no, there's definitely an addition in the movie here where he has a friend who's a part of that council that he goes yeah. to see. And this is obviously to give him someone to bounce dialogue off of, mm-hmm. whereas in the book he's almost always talking to himself in mm-hmm. his own head. So that that's kind of a, a nice way of doing that. Yeah. Um, I thought I wrote down uh, watching this when the, him and his friend are sitting in front of the fire. This movie, this movie's aesthetic is maybe just old men sitting in front of uh, crackling fires and yeah. talking about conspiracies. Yeah. So while this is happening, uh, Sophie and Robert are going to see Lee. They're they're um. No, 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 not yet. They get to the bank. Yeah. Okay. I was just gonna skip over that. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a part of it. I mean, um, so they go to the bank and they get their stuff. Basically, it's. I feel like it's played off a lot bigger in the book than yeah. it is in the in the movie. I mean, they they still play it the exact same uh, way. Yeah. Uh, like this manager of the bank, Andre Vernet, uh, is worried about security and stuff, and so they get in and they solve some more codes and they take the uh, the box with them, which has yeah. the cryptex inside, which we'll find out later. And Verne helps them escape from Fash, who's still pursuing. But I think uh, maybe it's a point to talk about here is that Fash and his pursuit of them is what's actually driving any of this, is that yeah. there's action, there's like a, a time schedule on them, basically, because everywhere they go, they're being pursued, no matter whether it's to the Louvre or to the bank or then to the church later on. They're being followed the whole time by Fash mm-hmm. and his cronies. And yeah, so there's this, I know it's a little contrived, maybe. Um, I mean, I like Fash as a character, and I understand. It's, all right, now, Fash is chasing them... In the book... Because he legitimately thinks that they murdered um, Sonia and the three other men. In the movie, he's been tipped off by Aringa Rosa, yeah. right? Did that happen in the book? Uh, I'm sure it didn't. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure it didn't. So in the movie, Aringa Rosa I know they has talk. told him that Langdon came to him in confession and confessed to murdering the four people. So basically, he has set up Langdon Yeah, he's a liar. Because he's read Langdon's book and he knows that Langdon's yeah. kind of on to something. Yeah. And I think the teacher had told him, it's implied that the teacher had told him to tell about Langdon. Yeah, well, that, and that makes sense because T-Bean would have been someone who read Langdon's book. Yeah. And also knew that he would, he would have known that he was going to meet Sonia as well. Yeah, that doesn't happen in the book, I don't think. No. 
it's kind of strange the way that fascist he kind of does relate in a lot of parts and not at all in others. Yeah, I think it's implied in the book that they it's definitely stated that fascist opus day. So I think then you you start to think, oh well, is he working for a Ringarosa then because he's opus day? But it turns out to be a red herring. Mm. Um, so he he's just opus day, just a religious man, and um, he's actually a good man because it turns out that he doesn't keep going after them once he finds out that they're not guilty. Yeah. He, he um he goes after the person who is guilty, which is yeah. Lee Teabing. So that whole bit's kind of weird, but I can see why they would add it to just kind of explain how he why came he's going to his conclusion, him, so. yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that makes... Yeah. I wrote in the middle bit here that this this film is kind of dragging at this point. It mm. does have to tend to take... While they're going through the park, especially, and the bank, like... It's space to put exposition in because there's so much to explain and get through. And they start talking about the grail here and the deeper lore behind mm. it. I feel like if they could have found a different way for them to get the box than going to the bank, they would have and probably should have done it. It makes sense in the book, but in the movie, it's just a boring side thing they have to do. Yeah. So then um, Vinay, who's the bank manager, he tells them, your account comes with a safe passage clause. So um, get in the back of this truck and I'll take you to safety. And but he's not. He's taking them to the woods so he can kill them. Yeah. <laughs> and take their cool thing. Because yeah. he knows what it is. He knows Jacques Saunier well. He do, I don't think he knows what it is. But he knows. He thinks that they murdered Jacques Saunier. Yeah, and Jacques Saunier right, is yeah. his friend. Yeah. He doesn't want the police to have the thing yeah, because he doesn't he's, think Jackson He's Jackson concerned about the integrity that. and he's concerned yeah. about the integrity. He's very selfish. He's, he's concerned about selfish, the integrity yeah. of his bank and not much else. But he doesn't want them to have it either. So he tries to shoot them and then Robert tricks him and smashes his face in with a door. And then they drive away in the truck. And they're headed off to Lee's house. But in between that, in the movie, we get some more scenes of Silas whipping himself. They do it again. They're, yeah. they're, I was cringeworthy the first time, I must yeah. admit. And it does help you characterise him. And then the second one time, they don't show you the whip actually hitting him, but they show that he's about to do it again because I think he's trying to confess for killing the nun uh, or that he killed at the last church he was at. Yeah. Oh, we should say when he gets to that church, we got sidetracked. When he gets to that church... Um, he couldn't find the box. He, yeah. He, he, he um, breaks he was, open the floor where he was told to break it open and there's a Bible passage and it says something like... Uh, Thou shalt come here and no further. And no further, yeah. Um, and so he's like, oh man, they so he lied gets, to me. He gets real ticked off at that and, and he, he kills, kills a, a nun. nun. But then he prays for it, so it's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. It's all fine. Um, <laughs> he's pretty messed up in the Awkward. Head. Yep. Whoops. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so he, he whips himself some more and then we get back to Sir Lee Teabing's house. This is probably the best part of the movie, I think, is um, when we first meet Ian McKellen's character. I just love Ian McKellen. Yeah, it's a very fun... All right, all right now, let's talk... First up, the name. Sir Lee Teabing, pronounced L-E-O-S-O, spelled L-E-I-G-H, Teabing. Is that the most British name that yeah. Dan Brown could think yeah. of? Yeah, Because he goes to pretty explicit lengths to say, oh, this guy's really British, because he asks them, you know fake password questions before they, he allows Sophie and Robert in about tea and what you should have it with and whether anyone from Harvard has ever been beaten by anyone from Oxford in the rowing competition. Yeah. So poncy. Yeah. And of course, Robert knows all the answers. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very funny. And, and Ian McKellen's a pretty good character, the, the yeah. actor to play this character. Yeah, he's such a sweetie. He's so, he's so good. and Oh, I'm waving my hands in the air right now uh, because uh, because he's played by Ian McKellen. There's a bit after Langdon answers these fake passcode questions. He's like, you may pass. I'm like, no, you shall not pass. That's not what you say. Do the other thing. Um, 
And then right away, there's another very funny comedic moment where Sophie gets her French mixed up uh, with her English. And he's like, ah, so we play our chess close to our cards. Yeah. And Langner's like, yes, very close. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining that playing out in real life. So I'm playing a game of cards. Instead of playing their cards close to their chest and holding them close, like your cards are on the table and you're just putting your boobs on them or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> Stop anyone from seeing them and distracting everyone. That's always how I play anyway. <laughs> Yeah, um, it was a, it's, a, it's a nice little comedic. There are not a lot of comedic moments in this movie. Yeah. There are hardly any. Yeah. It's it's very pretty dark. Well, it's not dark. It's just very serious the whole way through. Yeah. And that, that can kind of make it difficult at times, especially in the extended edition. I was like, oh, this film's so long. Yeah. And there's no brevity to it at all, really. Yeah. I mean, Tom Hanks as an actor is not someone who kind of provides that necessarily in a more serious role. He's pretty one note in this to an extent. In this, yeah. Um, I mean, he's a great actor. And he's very good in some other stuff. Uh, but in this, he was kind of one note, which kind of follows the book. I mean, Langdon's kind of a one note character yeah. in the book. I mean, he doesn't well, have I a lot of Well, I think he's an author him. insert, isn't he? Yeah, he's basically. Just... He's he's there to solve the codes and not much yeah, else. And that's what, that's what he was recruited for, Yeah, is to help Sophie solve the codes. Um, so T-Bing explains all of the... Uh, fake history, but it's very well done here. The, well through done. the visual flashbacks, that I found that really helped. Yeah. to you know process what was going on yeah. in the movie. So um, he explains all about um, Constantine and how he was um, converted on his deathbed and Council of Nicaea, Council of Nicaea, and um, and basically about the painting, The Last Supper, painted by Da Vinci, who was a, a grandmaster of the Priory of Sion. And if you look closely at the uh, disciple on his right. It's supposedly really a woman, and it's, it's Mary, Mary Magdalene. Magdalene, not not John, yeah. as it yeah. actually is. And um, this is the first bit where the conspiracy really starts diverging from the truth of what is reality that yeah. we know. You know, because obviously this Last Supper, it is John, and painters painted like that. You know, like it could just bear a similarity, and and maybe there is some very vague symbology. In this painting, I'm interested to see well, what maybe real symbol. Well, she did think that, and it is supposed to be a woman, but it doesn't make it true. No. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's a painting, it's also a... fiction. Yeah. Um. You know, but it's it's very. I mean, this is the basis for a lot of Brown's theory yeah. to go on. Any kind. Of, I found it very funny, and I'm not sure whether it was self-referential or not. But um, Teabing in both book and movie says the mind sees what it wants to see, and 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 then he goes on about all this stuff that he's seeing. I'm like. You're just seeing what you want to see. You're yeah. seeing a conspiracy. Like, is well, that, are you not falling victim to your own thing? Though? Yeah, well, um, I think in the movie, Langdon actually says, because he says, the mind sees what it wants to see when Sophie says, that's a man. And then he says, no, it's Mary Magdalene. And Robert says, the mind sees what it wants to see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it, it's, I mean, precisely. It's, it's. I can't tell whether he's included it as yeah. self-reference or not, whether yeah. he's being like, this is fiction. Or yeah. not, because I, I just, I, Dan Brown's such a weird He's a weirdo. Uh, guy, but... Yeah. Yeah, so this bit's pretty cool. There's another funny bit where they're talking about the blade and chalice. So the blade is um hands together pointing up and the chalice is heel of your palm together. It's a beam. Open. <laughs> um so uh when Langdon shows Sophie the blade, she said he says, Oh, this is a rudimentary phallus and um it's still used on army uniforms. And um <laughs> Ian McKellen goes, Yes, the more penises you have, the higher your rank. Boys will be boys, he says. Uh, I wonder. 
That's really kind of enjoy, true, right? Yeah. That's kind of something I would like to see kind of be based off real things. Yeah, I really enjoyed that line. I thought it was really funny. Yeah. And especially coming from like a little old English man. Yeah, it's funny considering who he turns out to be in the end, that he's probably the, the character with the most uh, brevity in the whole thing. Yeah. Now, he does provide a couple of comedic moments. And he's yeah, very... well, because you, you warm to him so quickly because he's a nice old man. And mm. because he um he walks with crutches because yeah, he had polio it's... as a child, they refer to him as a cripple a few times. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, ooh, but they're, is they're that in... the right The whole time, they're, they're, they're just pouring on you, oh, sympathy for this man. Yeah. He's so nice. I, I, I mean, maybe this is a good time to talk about uh, this in that once you've read the book, you know the plot, you know the conspiracy, you know the ending, you know the twist. The movie doesn't carry that same weight. I would love to see what someone thought of the movie who had not read the book at all yeah. and wasn't and hadn't read seen the movie before, um, because I wonder whether that would give you a different perspective on it. And because we're both coming to this having read the book first and then seen the movie, and that obviously takes away that element of surprise for you. So it, it's interesting to see. I wonder whether someone who'd not read the book and saw only the movie, whether the surprise, how the surprises kind of feel to you. Yeah. Uh, compared to the book. That's what I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's a lot of exposition here, but it's interesting exposition because it's yep. explaining where this conspiracy is coming from. More interesting in the movie than the book, I think, because it the book takes a long yeah. time and obviously you can't you don't have that visualization, so it's just dialogue between the characters. Yeah. And they're just going back and forth explaining things and solving the code. And this is the first time where they're like, the Holy Grail is not a cup, it's a woman and it's Jesus kids. That's what yeah. it is. So they're now they're they're hunting they're kinda of hunting for two things. They're after Mary Magdalene's tomb uh, and documents. documents which prove who the descendant of Jesus Christ is. Yeah. They're more after the tomb, but the I think the connection between the two is that the tomb, which has the bones, is empirical evidence that lives on, so you can prove that via DNA testing that they're related to yeah. uh, the heir, whoever yeah. that might be at the time. They're lucky that like none of the heirs ever had like one or two male kids. Yeah. Or anything like and and, and who never had any more kids of their own, you know, like the line never died out. <laughs> Yeah. Because they say in the... Well, I guess it's like any royal line. If the Priory of Sion was protecting them, they would basically say, you have to have children, so this line... This is my point right at the end. I wrote a note about this, right? And I'm like, because they say quite specifically, you're the only remaining living relative of of Jesus Christ. And and now she's got all these people protecting her right at the end. And so I'm like, man, and she's like, my grandmother has some things she wants to tell me. I'm like, man, the first thing she's going to be telling you is you need to get yourself a man and have some kids because otherwise we are all fucked. Yeah, but also that's not the case in the book because her brother's still alive. Yeah, so is her brother not the the? The brother is the docent of yeah, the yeah. church. Who they who, never they never reference so that in it, the movie. But in what well, in the movie, there's still a docent who looks exactly like her, and so I'm like, oh, they're gonna explain it in well, a minute. Yeah. But then she specifically says, "I'm the only living heir," so they're saying that the docent isn't her brother. Mm. So they've just taken out the brother entirely, but somewhat kind of hinted yeah it's, it's very weird very weird yeah there's just just a lot of loose threads in this film i think yeah. and that's probably one of the complaints we'll have when we talk about this right at the end and we give our verdict on it and there's a lot of stuff unpicked and yeah well we were saying before it it gets less and less close to the book which in some cases you know we have to it's fine about because you have to do it for movies yeah but in this case the things they change are annoying and don't add anything, so... So Lee is about to kick them out until they reveal that they have the cryptex and the secret of the grail. And he's can I a- just say, sorry, sorry, can I interrupt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're only about halfway through, everyone. <laughs> this There's is, still so much to this go. This movie is so complicated. 
Yeah, so TVing is about to kick them out because the TV is like, oh, we were hunting these murderers. And he's like, oh, you didn't tell me you murdered people. And then they're like, hey, we got this this connection to the Grail. And he's a Grail specialist. So he's like, yeah, all right, I'm cool. Yeah, I'm it. cool with you murdering people. And, and they also reveal that Sophie is uh, Sonia's granddaughter, which he's like, oh, so you wouldn't have murdered him because you're the heir. Yeah, because people don't murder family members ever. Yeah. That's um, fine. <laughs> um, so then uh, he they're looking at the and then Silas appears and he attacks Langdon. So Tabing then attacks with his um one of his crushes. He smacks Nazi. Silas in the leg, and then the the um explanation given is that he realised that he was walking with a limp because he was wear because he was the wearing Celise. a Celise. But then later you find out that he knew Silas, so he would have known that he was wearing it. Yeah, that's one of the strangest things because I mean obviously I remember the twist. Upon before I started even rereading, like I remember the twist from the first time back, maybe ten years ago, that T Bing was the villain, um, and I, and so reading it and seeing all this stuff that he was doing to uh, to Silas, I was like, man, like <laughs> you really don't give a shit yeah. about this guy. <laughs> what a dick. Yeah, he really is. <laughs> like he's pretty brutal, and he, I mean, he's a he's a mastermind. Like he orchestrates yeah. the whole thing very well. Because he doesn't reveal any more information to anyone than he has to, even to the extent that Silas might have killed him by accident had yeah. had something not happened. Um. So then they um. They managed to subdue Silas. Yeah. Uh. They pile everyone in. The police arrive. They pile everyone into a Land Rover and they drive to a private airport. Um. So in the movie, T. Bing calls ahead and he says, "Oh yes, we would like to go to Zurich." Um. And that's important because uh that's in Switzerland, so you can't um be extradited. So then when Fash goes to the airport, initially he's told they've gone to Zurich and he thinks there's nothing I can do. So then we have the stuff on the plane where they're cracking the code. But we go back to Fash and he's standing in the, the airport and he's feeling really down because he's lost the trail. And then Kalei comes in and says, you know, why are you taking this? So-? I think something like, why are you taking this so hard? And he explains that he's Opus Day and that um, a bishop rang him and said, like, I need a personal favour, and he's, he's doing it because he's religious. So that's where we get the Opus Day thing for Fash. And then Collet says they've changed course, they're going to London, so then they call ahead and they get the police to meet them on the ground in London. Um, this is where I want to talk about Collet. Yeah. Is he Opus Day in the film? Because he suddenly, he's, once he realises that Fash is Opus Day, he's like, ah, oh, I'll help you out, but you should have just told me because we're buddies or something. And they hate him. Collet, like, doesn't like him in the books. Because he, he's like, oh, he's not letting me do anything cool. Like, he's being um, really mean. I think he respects him, but he doesn't like him in the books. He respects him as yeah, a police yeah, as, officer. Oh, yeah, and everyone does. He's, yeah. he's very well known for his bullshit. I didn't get that he was Opus Day. But suddenly he changes his tune really yeah. strangely in the movie. In that he says, I'll take care of the controller who's who's about to sue you for assaulting him. This is um, one of the points where they were speaking in French. So I was like, just guessing what they were saying. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So in this in this bit in the movie, he legit, uh, he's like, oh, um, what's going on? Why, why are you acting so funny? And he's mm-hmm. like, and, and like you said, he tells him he's Opus Day. He's like visibly the actor changes his stance and tone he's like oh you should have just told me i'll take care of the uh, controller you go on to london and sort yeah. what it sort your shit out uh, yeah it's just uh, i mean i don't get it i don't get yeah, it <laughs> that does seem weird um so i'd like some it's explanation not like for they that. particularly suggested they were bros or anything in the movie no I, I, Even though Collet is like completely not what I imagined in the no, book. No, no, no. I, I thought he was like thin and wiry in the book and lo- a lot younger than Fash. Yeah. 
for some and reason, in my head, cigar smoking, like my head, elderly I, French man. <laughs> in my head, I've never seen the movie that I imagine him as the character from, but I imagine he looks exactly like the like a tra- the train conductor, maybe from either Hugo or the Polar Express. Right. But he's just someone wearing a tall hat and from France. <laughs> is yeah. what I'm getting at. Yeah. 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 Okay. But yeah, I, I imagine like Tina Wiring. A Tintin esque character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like I like the actor who plays him and I like the, the yeah, kind he's of good. Um, yeah, yeah. the character in the movie. I actually like him more than I did in the book and I yeah. enjoyed in the I think the extended edition. It gives him a little more to do and it gives him a couple of chances to have sideways glances at fashion and be like, Oh, what's this guy doing? Yeah. Um, maybe they're boyfriends. Yeah, maybe. That's always my answer to everything. French policeman boyfriends. <laughs> I'd watch that movie. Yeah. <laughs> um Okay, anyway, so uh, after they're dealing with this, uh, the, the crew fly off in the air and they've got with them Remy, the manservant of Teeving, who's yeah. French himself. And Teeving is really mean to, actually. Yeah, but weirdly, he's French, called Remy Le Galadec, but he has an English accent mm. in the movie. Yeah, one of their, maybe, maybe one of their Maybe he's anglicised, maybe he, yeah, but it's very weird. I mean, it's, it's tinged slightly with French, but it kept bothering me. Yeah. Uh, and you've also got, uh, they've got Silas with them still captured. Sophie goes and like slaps him once or twice in the, yeah. in the movie. That's annoying to me. Yeah. Kind of unnecessary. There, there's, there's about in the extended edition, actually, this is probably one of the longest added scenes. There's about two and a half minutes added on for some, uh, character building between Sophie and Langdon. Yeah. Uh, where she's like, Hey, once we get to Zurich, I'll drop you off at the embassy. Yeah. Um, and then they discover that they need to go to London. Uh, because they figure out the answer to the... Cryptex. Cryptex. Do they, no, do they though? Because do, there's no second Cryptex in the movie. Yes, there is. Is there? Yes. How come the it, looks second... the same, it looks the same size. Are you sure? Because they put it back in the first Cryptex. Oh, okay. I'm sure. So the first Cryptex is they open it and that's when they get in London lies a night yeah, of yeah. I remember seeing that, but in my head for some reason I did not see them open and find a second cryptex inside. Because the cryptex that they have in the the tomb right at the end looks pretty big. It doesn't look like you could have fit it inside the one they had originally. No, 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 because they don't. They open the box. There's no second cryptex. And here's what they've done. They've replaced the uh, sub-rosa underneath the rose line. They open that little lid. That's where the writing is, under the lid of the box to the cryptex. Because remember, in the books, one of the clues is Sophie or something like that, or the You're fr- Sophia. Right. I knew I wasn't making I that up. I must have just added that second cryptex in because it's what happens in the book. I made a special note of this because we're like, there's no second cryptex, and I wondered what they'd cut out. And only just now, as we're recording this, have I yeah, realised yeah, yeah. that's where they've taken it's it. It's cleverly done because even having read the book. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, that's how it happened. Yeah, well, there's so many codes they have to solve. You understand like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) There you go. I knew I wasn't making that up. Like, I'm sure there's no second I'm sorry for doubting you. No, no, it's all good. So they they find underneath of the box, they've got the next clue, and that diverts them to London uh, instead. And obviously, this is when Fash finds out. They ring ahead, and they organize some police to meet them there. It's a nice, well-realized scene when they land in London. Yeah. I think they changed the location slightly. It's they still, landed a private airport outside. Yeah, it's a, it's a different yeah. airport in location in name only, yeah. I think. But, um, they, um, it looked like the Top Gear track for a minute. I was like, I wonder if that's where they filmed it. Because yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's an airport is yeah. where it is. Um, but so they land here uh, and they pretty accurately film exactly what happens in the book. In the, um, As the plane is turning around the private hangar, uh, Sophie and Langdon and Silas... You know, leap out. Silas, obviously not of his own accord, but they drag him with them into the car. Car, yeah. 
Um, as the plane is turning around before the police arrive, the um, Teabing does not spend as much time in the movie threatening to sue them for stepping on board his plane. Uh, but other than that, it's pretty accurate. Yeah, so, so Teabing, because he's a knight, you know, commands a lot of respect and the police just have a quick look around in the plane and then go, oh, he obviously the, the French are stupid. Because yeah. they're English and that's yeah, what they that's like what to I, do. As soon as he, I'm about yeah. to say, as soon as he, as he's driving off to his fake medical appointment, yeah. he says out the window, never trust the French. <laughs> it's so British of him. <laughs> it's so good. It's very funny. Um, yep. So they're off to, uh, to the temple church is where yeah. they're off to. Um, so in the book, they get there and they have to convince the docent to let them in. Um, and it's the docent who says, Oh, it's this little kid, right? Little kid, yeah. Well, teenager probably. Yeah. Uh, who says there's no people buried here? Yeah. Which then tells them the the clue is in London lies a knight, a pope interred, so they know it has to be a tomb, and it, they're just effigies, they're not tombs. So, but instead of that, they're looking at the effigies, and um, Langdon picks up a pamphlet and he's reading it. And he goes, "Oh, these aren't tombs." Then Silas busts in, right? Uh, oh, so Remy. Remy has released him. Yeah, Remy's released him. So he betrays them. Yeah, Silas busts in and um, uh, grabs Sophie. And then Remy comes in after him and, and Langdon's going, you know, Remy, don't shoot. They're too close together. And then Remy just basically turns the Where's gun the on gun Langdon, which is cool. Remy punches Teabing or knocks Teabing to the ground. And then runs off with the, yeah, um, I think, with the cryptex. Oh, yeah. He takes oh, they the they take him back to the car. Yeah, they take the cryptex stuff from Langdon the and they stuff Teabing in the boot and then... Right, I had a note here, and I realised why we're pausing because, like, how did they escape? Because Remy's about to shoot the uh, Sophie and, yeah, and Langdon, sorry, and I'm then not, a I'm bird like... comes down, and they're like, and, and he's distracted for a moment, and they run out. Yeah, that's right. There's all this like area they have to run through, and they magically get through, it and he shoots them and misses, and then they escape into London and the, yeah. the trap of the, the people. A bird, WTF? That was my yeah. note. It was really weird. It was almost trying to say sort of a heavenly intervention I think mm. which is just a very strange addition because it's a dove a dove flies down from the roof of the church <laughs> yeah. and flies away and he's like Ooh. yeah and they Ooh. run away and they get away really quickly and then comes my favourite bit of the whole movie they are standing in this corner and they've just run away and then Langdon says the words I need to get to a library and it's my favourite line that I've ever heard in a movie because it's so seriously said and it's so stupid. It is. It's a bit I silly. love it. Because they don't really explain why. Yeah. Where they do in the book is like, I need to go to the library so I can search yeah. for um, knights that are Pope in turns so yeah. I can find out where they're going. And then they go on a bus and they search on a guy's flip phone. Yeah, because Sophie pretends to flirt with him and yeah. then like replaces herself with Langdon. She's like, you can use this guy's phone. He's like, I didn't know you had a boyfriend. So in the book... They make out that the only thing that is going to work for them to search for this information is if they go to the most powerful database system in the whole country, which is at Oxford. Not Harvard. Not Harvard, no. Not Harvard. Not this time. And they, they get a librarian to help them, you know, use a Boolean search key. Um, it's like an instructional oh section my God, of the book for so like new university students. Yeah, it's so bad. I like what they did with it in the movie. Yeah, it's so kind of funny. And in, on, in the movie, he just Googles a knight of Pope in turn. Yeah. It's so funny because it's, yeah, it's, it's just really saying like, yeah, you kind of can just Google that kind of thing. Yeah. I, when I was watching, I, I was like, man, this would have been so much easier if you were filming like five years later and smartphones had been invented because yeah. they're typing it in on this flip phone. It's like, The flip oh. phone is amazing. It's so good. It's so funny. 
Um, um, and then this is kind of interspersed with some this probably the most weirdly shot piece of the film where uh, Remy is now in like the docks part of London. Um, yeah, and he's talking to this this character you can't see off screen. It's almost as if the camera is being shot from the viewpoint of whoever he's talking to. Yeah. And Remy's like, oh, I did a good job, hey, and then this sort It's so weirdly filmed. It's totally out of character with the rest of the film, I thought. It really didn't yeah. suit uh, the, the style of the rest of it. I yeah. mean, obviously, the reason they've done it is so you don't see who the teacher is until the big reveal. So you get this clip, you get back to uh, Langdon and Sophie trying to flip their, you know, use their flip phone. And you also, in the extended edition, and I'm not sure if it's in the theatrical, you get a clip from back at uh, the compound, uh, at Lee's house. They're, they're finding out about all this surveillance stuff. Yeah. And there's this throwaway line. Uh, they're like, oh, we picked up some fingerprints. Remy Legadulek, uh, he yeah. had a peanut allergy or something like that. Or like, they're like, oh, he stole, he, he escaped from hospital without paying for a tracheotomy or something. Yeah. Which is kind of funny. Uh, and they're like, oh, he's got a peanut allergy. And they and in the book, obviously, that's how Teabing ends up poisoning him. He's like with like peanuts in his yeah. glass or something like that. And in the movie, he just like, so you get the clip of Remy saying I did a good job, back to at T-Bing's house, back to Sophie and Langdon, and then back to another, that weirdly shot um, version of Remy dying as T-Bing has poisoned him with no reference to peanuts. Like, I'm assuming that it's maybe it's only in the extended edition because they're throwing it there for the people who'd read the book, but it's kind of unnecessary because he could have just, he just poisoned him. Yeah, the well, they really say anything. later, oh, Remy Legaladek was found poisoned. poisoned. I mean, you didn't I really guess... need to say any more than that in the book. Yeah. Either, to be honest. I mean, I maybe it's that teaming book... couldn't get a hold of poison. Well, I suppose in the book he was trying to make it look like an accident. Yeah, true. Yeah. Whereas poison is kind of obviously not. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, they've also dropped Silas off uh, at this point at an Opus Day house in London. And so here, um, and, and again, another really weirdly shot bit for me where. Uh, Langdon and Sophie have gotten to Westminster where um, they find out that A. Pope is actually Alexander Pope. It's an initial and so they make their way to Sir Isaac Newton's tomb because Alexander Pope uh, watched over his funeral. And Teabing's already there having figured that out uh, beforehand but he needs them to open the cryptex. But then alongside this as Teabing's holding them hostage and they're walking through, there's this bit of dialogue they're saying and they're interspersing this with... Police showing up at the Opus Day headquarters to arrest Silas, who Teabing has tipped them off to, being a dick again. And Aringa Rosa has also landed in London at this time, uh, looking for the Opus Day house. And as Silas sees the police, tries to escape, uh, shoots a couple of them, and in his frenzy, shoots Aringa Rosa. And he's like, oh shit, no, I shot him. And then more police come. He tries to shoot one of them. They shoot him back. He dies. Uh, and Aringa Rosa ends up living. It's almost done as if it's filmed for artistic effect. If you get what I mean? Yeah. I just didn't really think it kind of hit home for me, the way it was filmed. Because they're doing this alongside dialogue from being cut over from T-Bing uh, talking about Grail stuff. <laughs> yeah. Because you haven't had all the character development of Aringarosa. It was sad in the book when Silas shot him because you thought he killed him. Hmm. And Silas was so devastated. And that's the other thing is Silas runs away before before the police can find him and then he actually kills himself because he thinks he's killed Aringarosa, mm. which is a huge change. He's more sympathetic in the book, I think, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's, he's a tragic villain. Like, he's, he's kind of... He's being manipulated he's being by used, other people. Yeah. yeah, it's a really weird change to make. Yeah, it doesn't have the same effect in the movie at all. No, no, definitely not. Um, but that's not where the main action is now because we're getting to the, um, the first climax of the film. 
because there are two uh, in Westminster. Teaming is needs their help to open the cryptex, and there's yeah. this big Mexican standoff scene. Um, Sophie can't open it uh, even when he's threatening her life, so he gives it to Langdon. Like, I think I can do it. And this is where we get that scene we talked about earlier. You get that revisualization with the photographic memory of Isaac's tomb, and he's trying to think of what orb is missing from it, and it's an apple. Yeah. Weirdly picked again in this for obviously because you could just looked out a window, um, but done if it's done for surprise, whatever. So to, the only way that uh, Langdon can think of uh, to stop anyone dying is to throw the cryptex in the air. Obviously, if it drops, it breaks open, so Teeming has to catch it. Yeah. And he drops his gun. Teeming's a cripple anyway, so yeah. Um, kind of needs to to let go of everything to be able to have any chance. And it breaks anyway. He's like, oh, what did you do? And it's, it's nicely filmed. I think it's filmed in a way that keeps the surprise yeah. uh, later on. Yeah. So we don't find out for about maybe another five, ten minutes of the movie. He'd already opened He'd already decks. opened it and taken out the um, the piece of paper that was inside before sealing it again and leaving the vinegar yeah, in there. Which had the location of the Holy Grail. And so... It's very convoluted that they explain why Teabing is after this uh, because he's kind of he wants to reveal the secret to the world. Um, yeah, the... well, he think it's to do with the so dark the con of man that basically the con of man is that that women are being subjugated in the book. It's all to do with the church and having that whole aspect of it goes yeah. almost unmentioned in the film yeah. aside from one flashback. Yeah, so it's it's to do with there used to be equality between male and female in terms of God worship, so therefore that then filtered down to people as well. And then the church said, no, women are evil, you know, Eve and the apple, and the, that's the reason God punishes them with that's childbirth. A funny con- that's and- a funny conspiracy, I thought, that when I was reading the book, I was like, this is really dumb. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's true that women are, are still considered not equal to men yeah. on a whole throughout the world. But it's not because the church was like, oh, well, we got to put a stop to this, even though the church is massively sexist as an organisation in general anyway. I mean, it's not only that. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, it's not like a conspiracy. It's just a bunch of different factors throughout time. This is, in the book, there's a bit more explanation around this because uh, the Priory of Sion have changed their mind about revealing the secret and now they no longer want to tell the world for whatever reason. Well, they've decided it's, they nece- not necessarily haven't, Never want to, but they've decided it's still not the right time. Yeah, and because they were going to do it in the year two thousand at the turn of the millennium, and then they're like, nah. T- but Teabing says that that all the law says that they should have done that. Yeah, but this none of this is mentioned in, in the movie. Yeah. It would have been another big plot thread to have to introduce. Yeah. I think so. It's probably best that they left it out. Uh, and so, uh, right as he catches the cryptex, or catches but still fails to save the cryptex, yeah, uh, Fash and his crew burst in and very nicely arrest Teabing. They could have been like the book or the movie could have included like a twist where they're like, oh, Langdon and Watson and Sophie still did it. But they kind of just arrest Teabing and move on pretty quickly. In the movie, by that point, he's spoken to a ring and a ring has admitted that he made up Langdon's confession. A very nice scene, actually, in the in the movie. It ties it up nicely. Yeah, where it doesn't in the book. No. Um, a ring, as regards Ring Rose's role and Fash. Yeah. I felt a lot more sympathetic to Fash in the movie at the end yeah. because of this scene. He kind of gets a nice little ending to it. Um, and so that's kind of the end of the first climax, but then they're... Uh, then in the movie and the book, you get the reveal that they know, well, they have another clue to where the Grail is. Um, and so this leads them to Rosalind Chapel for the start of the second ending of yeah. the movie. Theoretically, you could have left it here. You could have left it without resolution of the mystery. Uh, yeah, I don't know. In the extended edition, I, I legitimately, and I, uh, I said this to you earlier, I, in my head, 
watching the movie, there was maybe five minutes left to go of them arriving at the chapel and then it just cuts off. There is another good 20 minutes of, yeah. of 25 minutes in the extended edition yeah. here of uh, mystery solving. Yeah. And it's nice. I, I kind of like the mood and the atmosphere because there's no uh, action driving them to do it other than wanting to solve the yeah. mystery now. There's no one pointing a gun behind them. This is the point, though, that it really diverges from the book and... In several ways, I was just kind of ticked at it. So the first is uh, Sonier is not her grandfather. Uh, he's not her biological grandfather. Yeah. Um, he's just the head of the Priory of Science, and so was looking after her, which... After her parents were murdered by... After her parents by... were murdered, probably. The, the implication is that they were murdered because they were the blood. Oh, and, and that her brother died in the car accident, really did die in the car accident. In the book, her parents, grandmother and brother were in the car accident and she thought all four of them died and she went to live with her grandfather. In the movie, he's not her grandfather, he just adopted her. Her, gran- her grandmother's never mentioned and her parents and brother all died. Which is a huge change and doesn't really make any sense why they changed it. And makes that. the eventual reveal of her grandmother in the movie a yeah, who cares? non-event Yeah, who all. cares? You didn't even know you had a grandma. Like... There's, There's no emotional any... stakes yeah. behind it. Who cares about it if if she wasn't someone you thought was dead? And why did they make Sonia not her grandfather? Mm. Maybe they thought that it was too coincidental, but to me it's not. It's more coincidental that he managed to get her from the authorities and still report that she was dead. Yeah. If he's not actually her relative. Mm. Um, that was very strange when I was watching the movie. That like, oh, you, uh, when Langdon realised, he's like, yeah, yeah, you were reported dead. Does no? Did no one realize? Like, yeah. Because she goes. I guess she goes under the new name of uh, Sophie Sonia Niveau, Niveau yeah. instead of Saint Clair, which is an actual real uh, Jesus Junior name. Yeah. So she remembers being in this church right before the accident, and then this is where the movie just ends for me because I'm just like, oh, I don't, I don't have any patience with this movie anymore. So they go into the church. They go down some stairs into an area which is just open to the public. There's a rope. With this private, private sign on it, a velvet rope with a private sign on it, which they go through and then they'd find all the documents about Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. Well, it leads them to another room and then there's a room under that room. Which no, had... the room, so the room under the room is the one with the tomb, the tomb had been in, but the room they go in through the velvet rope, that has all the records in it. No, it's not, is it? Because they, yeah. they go through the rope and then there's the paintings on either yeah, side. Yeah, Da Vinci that... paintings and then like... But there's no, but, there, but no, but then there's like, oh, underneath starry skies and they see the roof and the, the roof has the stars on it and they look down and they're like, oh, and then he uh, brushes off the floor thing and there's a, there's a fleur de lis and he's like, and he turns it and picks it up and there's a, a staircase down again. But regardless, like still dumb that there would be a room with more with, well, expensive things in it. There's a room with Da Vinci's in it that's just... Like legit Da Vinci legit paintings. Legit Da Vinci paintings just behind a velvet rope and then... The only, their only security to cover up this extra room is a piece of carpet. Mm. This is kind of... Uh, I find it very ironic knowing the real meaning of that riddle was that the, the tomb is in another location. That, like, when... I'm assuming Saunier wrote this riddle or something. Yeah. That he, like, managed to make it fit both rooms, like, or both actual locations. Yeah. It's kind of silly. Yeah. Um, but in any case, um, they get down there and there's a bit of more expository dialogue... And we get the big reveal that Sophie is... Her last name should actually be Sophie McChrist. Yeah. <laughs> She's like Jesus' only living relative. Yeah. 
Sophie McJesus. Sophie McJesus. Um, <laughs> and so she gets this big reveal. She's like, oh, shit. Now what? Yeah. Now what do I do? Now what do um, I do? And so they kind of come back up the stairs. There's all these creepy people there. Yeah. Creepy people have arrived, uh, and they're like, "Hey, we know uh, that you're that you're Jesus Junior, and so now we're going to protect you." It's not exactly explained how. They mostly look like farmers, um, but I'm just, they're like the Priory of Sion or whatever mm. it is. They don't really have a anyone in charge anymore because there's no Grandmaster or Seneschal. Yeah. Um, Basically, happy, happy, joy, joy. Yeah, there. there's a there's, there, there is a nice little emotional scene at the end between um, Sophie and Langdon. Uh, it's it's a little. Nah, but. There's heaps of references to them being like, maybe you can walk on water, lol. Yeah, yeah. and she's like, oh, maybe oh. I can turn water into wine. No, uh, it's, it's a bit dumb. Yeah, and then, but then, to be honest, after that, we probably get what's my favourite scene of the whole thing, which is Langdon's at home. Uh, they they've still not found the tomb of Magdalene because they reckon it's been moved, so they have no empirical proof that she's um, Jesus' kid. Not that they ever. I think they never actually want to do a test. They just want to be able to do a test if they ever needed to prove it yeah. in the future when the Priory want to reveal the information or whatever. Yeah. And so they, uh, Langdon's back in, in France, in his hotel, uh, probably pretty glad to be back home after all that shit went down. Uh, but in the book, he cuts himself off shaving. His blood, like, drains in a line. And he's like, oh, the bloodline, the rose line. And he maps it out in his head. And he's like, oh, now is a dum-dum. I know where it is. And so he goes to the Louvre, where the Pyramid in Versailles is the blade and the chalice watching over Magdalene's tomb. And the very last shot is a great little spiralling shot from him kneeling on the roof above the Pyramid in Versailles to the tomb. And you, it goes through the tomb underneath where you see the, the actual... Um, the sarcophagus. Yeah, the sarcophagus itself of Mary Magdalene. Yeah. Th- that is scored so well. Yeah. I, I must admit, I'm not... This movie's kind of, you know, funny throughout. But that was a nice way to end the movie. Yeah. In the book, it's, you know, there's the a sentence that writes it off. And that's nice. But you can, it doesn't have the same effect in the book of... And you and we pan down to a cool yeah. um, uh, sarcophagus. It never mentions the sarcophagus. It's just like uh, it's talking about the Louvre and the Pyramid in Versailles. Yeah. And how he's just kneeling above it. Um, and in the movie, that panning shot is wonderful. It's the best way to end it because you actually get to go through and see that nice little yeah. uh, bow on the the whole. And over the theory. top, over the top of this, he's saying the rhyme. So yeah, you're yeah. seeing you're seeing how the rhyme fits what he's saying. Yeah. So that's a nice a nice way to end the movie. I thought um, yeah. I was pretty. Pretty happy with that. We haven't mentioned either uh, that the director of this movie was Ron Howard. Yeah. Uh, which kind of goes unnoticed. He's a director who does yeah. lots of big stuff. Uh, but... I don't know. Like, I wouldn't think of Ron Howard as doing this kind of thing, but... Um, no. He does a pretty good job. Yeah. I don't really know how much influence he had on anything, like what it would, what it, the film would have been like under a different director... Um, Hans, yeah. I should mention as well, Hans Zimmer scored this film. Yeah. Uh, he does, does he not do every Hans film Zimmery, ever? Yeah. yeah, but he, I, it would not surprise me. I was like, what if Hans Zimmer did this right at the end, having seen that, having heard that nice score? So, overall, do you have anything else to add about the movie, or should we do recommendations? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think, I think we've pretty much covered everything. Hey, I mean, so, Lois, uh, we're going to do three things. I want your, I want a thumbs up or thumbs down for the movie, and then for the book. And then want whether you think that this is a good adaptation uh, from book to movie. I'm going to give the book a thumbs up um, if you've never read it before. It's easy to read. It's gripping. Well, now you've listened to this, it's been completely spoiled for <laughs> you. So I guess still a thumbs up, but why did you listen to this? <laughs> um, uh, movie, I'm going to say same thing. 
it's fun. It's not a great movie, but it's fine. It's an okay adaptation. I don't know if I can give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. It's just okay. Um, they change a lot and for no good reason. Uh, it does lull in places where the book doesn't. So, yeah, I'm probably leaning close to a thumbs down on so, whether it's a good So you're adaptation. giving it a middle thumb. <laughs> yeah, I'm giving it a, a middle thumb. But, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not as good as it could be. For me, uh, the book... If you've never read it before, and obviously, again, if you're listening to this, you don't really need to because we've spoiled all the major plot points. But it, it's worth reading. Like it, uh, what we said at the top, it does turn pages. You do want to go to the next page and read more about the conspiracy uh, theory and delve into it. I mean, you've got to go into this knowing it's fiction. You know, if you are looking for hints on why the church is bad and what they're keeping covered up, there are non-fiction books that can probably do that much more accurately than this. And even I would be hesitant to believe a lot of what they do. This is fiction. Um, and so go into this knowing that it's fiction. Uh, it's enjoyable. Uh, I'll give it a thumbs up um, for reading. I mean, I actually enjoyed going back to read it. Even knowing the twist, I don't think I could say the same thing about the movie. I'm not sure whether this was influenced by the fact that I had just read the book before watching the movie, and so I very recently knew all the plots and twists and turns it would take. It has its moments. It does tend to stop in some places and drag... It's very well realised. It's very accurate to the book, I should say. Um, and so in terms of that as an adaptation, I think uh, I'm probably middle thumb on this as well, uh, if not leaning more to the thumbs down for the movie as a whole. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to do this as independently of the book as I can because I want to disassociate and think if I never read the book, would I enjoy this as a movie? Maybe. Middle thumb. We're going to have to invent that as a rating because yeah. there's some, some stuff that just requires that. Is it a good adaptation? Yeah, it's accurate. It, it, it hit. Um, I would like to know uh, whether someone who'd only seen the theatrical release thought the same thing, but it's a pretty good adaptation. It, uh, it diverges a bit at the end, but for the most part, it keeps all the same plot points, the same beats, uh, it's, and the visual realisation is really good in keeping with, with what Brown wrote originally. So Ron Howard's done a pretty good job there, I think, and I think it's a good adaptation. Oh, boy, I do not want to go near the Da Vinci Code yeah. anything again for like another 10 years, <laughs> Good, if not Goodness ever. gracious. <laughs> oh, boy. Why don't we talk about other things that we have been enjoying? Yep. I have just read uh, Chalky by John Wyndham. Uh, it is basically about a boy who has an imaginary friend who, throughout the book, you're not sure whether it's actually a being from another planet or whether it's just that the boy possibly is, um, you know, mentally ill. It's short. It's really short. It's very easy to read. I'd really recommend it. I really enjoyed it. And um, recently on a whim, I rewatched Fantasia, which is uh, that Disney movie with the uh, classical music and Dancing broomsticks. Dancing broomsticks. That's the only thing I know about it. Dancing hippos it. and crocodiles, which is my favourite. That's the last piece they do, and it's my favourite one. Yeah, I really enjoy that. I, I like having that on in the background sometimes. So, yeah. Uh, I have been consuming uh, reading wise I've been going through Marvel's Secret Wars comics uh, I'm still I, I realise I'm probably doing this at the same time as the last podcast we said this and I said the same thing that there's a lot to get through it's just been free comic book day over here so I am looking forward to what's coming up for Marvel as well I'm just trying to get myself up to, to current speed with it so I can start following because I've never really been a long term comics reader yeah. um, but having Finished a large part of their history now. I think I'm starting to get up to date with the new stuff. Yeah. And finally understanding continuity and which uh, which realms are which and that sort of thing. So yeah. 
Um, I think I'm starting to get on top of that. And it's a good, it's a good crossover. Um, I'm enjoying it. If you read comics, uh, Marvel is probably the big player in them at the moment. I mean, they've had that massive boost because of their cinematic universe and all the publicity that that's given them. Uh, but it's nice to go back to the roots of where the characters in the movies came from. And so on that note, the what I've been consuming media-wise is Civil War, which I went to go back and see um, this week for the second time. I still enjoyed it as much as I did the first time, and uh, for all my thoughts, you can go to our last podcast on that, um, but I think the biggest thing that a second watching did was confirm for me that if I had to pick a favourite Marvel movie, it would still be Winter Soldier. Right. It's still the best overall piece, even though Civil War is kind of everything you want an Avengers movie to be, I think Winter Soldier is everything that you could want for someone who's not a fan of the Marvel Universe to come into yeah. and see. I think independently it works without having fair. to know anything about the characters. Um, did Kat like it? Yeah, she did. She really enjoyed it. Yeah. And she actually knew, she's starting to get up to speed on Marvel stuff as well, just by association, but yeah. and having seen all the movies along with me. Yeah. Uh, but she kind of knew bits and pieces as well. I didn't know, I had to explain almost nothing, which probably is good uh, that the movie can do that for casual viewers without yeah. having, it, it does require some background knowledge, I mean, they don't go to great lengths to explain Ant-Man's background when he shows up. Um, you just kind of have to know that he had his own film. But this far in the Marvel Universe, that's somewhat to be expected. Yeah. In a, especially in a big franchise like this now. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure the longer that Star Wars or you know, all these other franchises that are popping up now, the longer they go on, the more that will be the case. Yeah. Okay, so next time we are reading um, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Classic. Yeah, classic. You can find us and contact us at wereadthebook at gmail.com and on Twitter at at readthebookpod. Please feel free to send us suggestions. We have a very long list, but... Um, but if you guys want to hear something first, yeah, we want to do that. We're, we, we you know, don't have any set order from them yet, so yeah. Let us know what you want to listen to. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, so we'll appear in your ears every two weeks. Yeah, and um, please rate and review the show if you enjoy it because that helps us reach more people. And if you don't, then uh, just keep that opinion to yourself. Yeah, um, and I would just like to take a quick moment to um, plug a show that some friends of ours do. It's called Teaves, T-E-A-V-E-S. Shout out to um, you, Regan and yeah, Liam. Regan and Liam S. Smith. Uh, Regan Lloyd and Liam S. Smith, rather. They are great. They uh, review episodes of TV shows. So if you like our show... You should definitely catch theirs. Um, they're so I don't think we should conf- like form a conglomerate. If we can find someone, one of our friends, who's going to start a music podcast, we can cover most of the major yeah, uh, media exactly. distribution We'll just formats. have a monopoly. It'll be fine. <laughs> um, but they're both delightful humans, so you should listen to their show. Um, so thanks for listening. I'm Lois Get to a Library Mitchell. Uh, I'm Adam McChrist Heap. Thanks. See you next time. Bye. Jesus is a friend. my god and still play rock and roll the music may sound different but the message is the same it's just an instrument to praise his name jesus is a friend of jesus is my friend jesus is my friend adam is the best the doesn't know i'm singing this song so i'm gonna stick it at the end of the podcast